Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the NK News podcast recorded here in Seoul on Monday, the 13th of May. And my special in-studio guest today is Professor Andre Lankov of Gungman University. He's a returning guest to our podcast, so I won't give him an especially long introduction. Welcome back, Andre. Yeah. Yes, thank you for inviting me again. And today is the first episode of a summer series. Uh, we're doing a series looking at the 30th anniversary of, well, looking back at the 13th World Festival of Youth and Students that was held in Pyongyang in 1989. Uh, so this year marks the uh, 30th anniversary of that festival, and I'm doing a series of podcasts looking back and talking to people who either were there or who have studied it from different perspectives to see what was the significance of this event 30 years ago. Andre, you were almost went to that uh, yes. festival yourself, didn't you? Yes, I did, because it was still the Soviet times, and I was approached through the university office with a proposal to go. Of course, I said yes. Was this in I Leningrad? Yes, yeah, yeah. It was 88, probably, soon after the Olympic Games, where I went. Uh, I submitted papers, but I never, never went, uh, because obviously had, they had less need for interpreters compared to the Olympic Games. It was a much smaller event from the Soviet point of view, uh, less people, and they simply did not make it into the final list. Okay, so, let's talk a little bit about, about the background of the event itself. So, as you have mentioned, uh, the Olympic Games took place here in September and October 1988 in Seoul, and that was, many people saw it as South Korea's coming out party, South Korea's debutante ball, so to speak, and uh, really joining the uh, the world of uh, of modern nations to host large-scale events. And uh, Pyongyang decided that since it wasn't able to co-host the Olympics with uh, with Seoul, because they, they did make that offer, didn't they, a few times. They, Pyongyang, yes. or, or, or demand, you might say. Yes, yeah. Kim Il-sung said, we want to co-host the Olympics with Seoul. And that was not allowed uh, by, by the, the South Korean government. And I think even the IOC wasn't particularly in favor of it. Yes. So North Korea decided, we're going to have something different a year later. We're going to invite a lot of young people from around the world to come to Pyongyang and to celebrate different world cultures and uh, politics and have debates and festivals and rock concerts and all sorts of things. Yes. And so that's, the, that's sort of the, ba the background or the context of it. Uh, I understand somewhere between 15 to 20,000 young folks from around the world, most of them, well, a lot of them from, uh, should we say, socialist and communist countries and others from Western countries, but affiliated with clubs or societies that were friendly to, uh -huh. uh, to the East Bloc descended upon North Korea for a, a period of, I think it was eight to ten days they were there in uh, in Pyongyang. Did you know anyone at the time who went there? Uh, yes, quite a lot of people, actually. I don't even remember all names. Uh, immediately after the event, I met a couple of people, and then in subsequent years, quite a lot of people. And talking about the movement, uh, indeed, North Koreans wanted to sh present this festival as their answer to the success of the Olympic mm. Games. If you look at the official North Korean media, above all, not on Sin Moon in 89 in summer, you will see the uh, large, uh, kind of in them, large, bold fonts statements like, it's a great success, greater than 
Olympics in Seoul, or you cannot even compare Olympic, the Olympic Games in Seoul with that. And then lengthy stories about how many foreigners used to say how better is Pyongyang is much better than Seoul, better, more developed, cleaner, how happier people are, blah, 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 blah. Uh, so it was a part of the story. And talking about the festival, we have to keep in mind something that is, it was a part of the so-called festival movement, which was initiated in the late 1940s by the Soviet Union. Uh, it was a part, essentially a front organization. It's stating that the person who was responsible in uh, for this movement uh, as a kind of Soviet representative in the international progressive left-wing movement. Uh, then he got another job immediately. His next job was what? Guess, please. I, I don't know. Chairman of the KGB. Oh. Uh, if you forgot the existence of such an agency. Uh, so he moved straight from supervising festivals, move festivals to running the entire KGB bureaucracy, which tells a lot about the idea. Uh, but it was indeed uh, targeting towards uh, left, a uh, kind of progressive-minded, left-leaning people with a measure of sympathy to the Soviet-style state socialism. Mm. It was a big choice, but I don't think you would find anybody who loves Trotsky, for example. Maybe you will find some anarchists, but overwhelmingly it will be supporters of all kinds of the traditional pro-Soviet left-leaning left politics, or at least people who did not challenge it. Uh, people who saw, say, the Soviet Union as a significantly lesser evil than the United States. So... It was a part of the story. So it was not just a kind of gathering of all youth right. across the world. It was a gathering of youth with, with a political agent of quite certain kind. Mm. And people outside this spectrum probably would be tolerated, uh, not necessarily encouraged to come. And definitely the people who would cherish it openly, they would not be there. What kind of preparations did the uh, North Korean uh, government have to, uh, uh, to put in place before the festival? Huge. They essentially built an entire uh, special kind of compound uh, to host the arrivals because they did not have enough places in their hotels, and uh, we are talking about really a very large number of visitors. Uh, so right, we're talking fifteen to twenty thousand. Yes, now, uh, now they built that hundred and five-story Ryugyong Hotel, but that was not completed. But it was supposed to be completed precisely for that festival, wasn't it? Yes, yes, and it was probably initial place where most of these people, a large part, was expected. To to stay, right. but things didn't work out. So where did they stay? Uh, they be, they built special uh, special area. Now it's used as apartments uh, where these people were staying. It was a rather long distance from the town to uh, make uh, mixing with uh, locals a bit more complicated, mm. but not impossible. Not impossible. Just a bit more complicated. Are you suggesting that there might have been some festival babies born? I cannot rule it out. I think there are very few. However, it's North Korea. It's quite uh, back then especially strict sexual mores and mm. general fear of foreigners because excessive interaction with foreigners uh, would be um, risky. Nonetheless, I frankly, I know that many foreigners who lived in uh, North Korea in the 1980s, 90s, 
Through early 2000s, they did have some secret affairs with the local women, affairs which included sex or sometimes were essentially sex and nothing else, mm-hmm. uh, just because, you know, of the interest in exotics. Uh, uh-huh. So from both sides, uh, maybe especially from North Korean side. Uh, so basically, I think that some cases it might have happened, but uh, given the, uh, um, you know, the looks of such babies, I don't, I don't think they're future was particularly bright and we are talking about small numbers i mm. think it's it did happen maybe occasionally but very very small number do you uh, imagine that there would have been um, uh, a high level of ideological uh, education in preparation before the arrival of so many young people of course you it's uh, you know it's north korea uh, especially north korea of under late kim Il-son, in late kim Il-son years mm-hmm. when they planned for everything when they instructed everybody and so on uh, therefore yeah it's quite predictable yes there was a great deal of stuff i'm pretty sure that all population of pyongyang spent long time and i'm not pretty sure i know they were instructed is at least in some basics of what to do with this crowd of foreigners and what to do if some foreigner suddenly appears in their neighborhood and so on. And people who worked with foreigners, of course, they were given extremely detailed instructions. Now, in the uh, the book, uh, The Wildest Shores of Marx, Journeys in a Vanishing World by Theodore Dalrymple, uh, he talks about, I believe it was him, he talks about going to one of the North Korean department stores. He was there for the festival uh, and what he believed he got the impression that he believed this was a department store a, a potemkin department store that people were instructed to buy uh, certain items and then go away and come back later and he said he he did so many trips around the department store that he saw the same people again and again returning to buy the same items does we've heard this story from other people too do you find that to be uh, a possible, a plausible story? Yes, I do. I'm not 100% sure. I'm a bit skeptical. But if it's if it's true, I will not be surprised. Uh, because in the uh, major department stores, well, basically, they did not sell stuff without rationing tickets uh, since the 70s. Uh, but they had an instruction. If a foreigner comes, uh, so um, department store would have to sell to this person anything the foreigner wants to buy without even hinting mm-hmm. that rationing exists. Uh, and uh, to in order to handle such emergencies, not very common, but they did happen, uh, some of the major department stores even had some special reserves, final kind of, you know, it was a part of problems with storage, problems with this and that, yeah. and, you know, stuff which had to be sold to the foreigners. So idea that somebody for sure was buying them to surrender and somebody was buying it again, mm. for me, it does not sound very plausible because I have not heard anything like that from the North Koreans. Mm. Uh, but I'm not sure, but it sounds it's plausible because a lot of stuff, especially during major events under late Kim Il-sung, was exclusively for sure. Now, you just mentioned uh, rations, for example. Uh, when you have fifteen to 20,000 visitors from overseas for a short period of time, you have to have a lot of excess uh, food or a lot of extra food, I should say, to cover all those hungry mouths. How did that affect uh, or how did that work together with the uh, North Korean system of tight ration controls? Uh, not well, because back then they had the second reduction in the size of ration. The first was in the 70s and the second was in the late 80s. And it was explicitly explained to the public that it had to be done in order to host the festival. Oh. Yeah, so um, to an extent it was just a convenient excuse because basically it reflected mounting economic problems. But it was not completely unfounded. Yes, it was a burden. 
it was a reasonably large burden for the country. Uh, but once again, it was vital be- for the North Korean decision makers because they were still in competition with South Korea. Yeah. They had to basically find some response to any uh, no South Korean action. And they could not just, you know, so, uh, do nothing after a successful, after success with the uh, 1988 Olympic Games. Okay, so this event happened uh, first week of July 1989. Just five years later, in 1994, we had the, uh, the death of Kim Il-sung uh, and then the arduous march around that time. Uh, some people might argue that the, uh, the extremely uh, profligate expenditure, uh, just the sheer waste and, and the size of, of projects around the time of the festival may have hastened the economic decline of, of North Korea during the 1990s and maybe even brought upon the arduous march. What do you think of that? Uh, of course, it did not. It did make a contribution uh, into the coming economic difficulties. Without festival, probably the, difficult, uh, the crisis would strike a bit later or would be a bit milder, but it would not make much difference, let's face it. Major problem behind the arduous march was actually first the internal problems with the North Korean economy, and these problems by that time had existed for 25, 30 years at least. Mm-hmm. And then we had a collapse of the outside donors, outside providers of aid above all the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. We had also a bit of touch of bad luck with the floods, even though it was not as important, even remotely not as important as the North Korean propaganda says. Mm-hmm. But it did make some contribution. So on balance, I would say festival is probably a distant fourth or fifth or sixth. So yes, it was not good for the economy. But it was not the reason which triggered disasters. Disasters were having anyway. The North Korean system, as it was created in the 60s and 70s, were bound to go down in flames, as it did. Were there any political effects of the festival? Uh, Well, back then, most people expected a political impact because everybody remembered Mm -hmm. the late 1950s, the Soviet Union where uh, in Moscow, they hosted the same festival. And it was the beginning of the new era of openness and relative liberalization of of the Soviet Union. People, especially Westerners, tend to underestimate how dramatic the changes of the mid and late 50s in the Soviet Union were, but they really were very dramatic. Uh, You know, it will suffice to say that number of political prisoners went from roughly 1 million to roughly 1,000 in 10 years. 1,000-fold decrease, very impressive, I would say, and so on. And for the outside world, as well as for many people inside the Soviet Union, the Moscow Festival, which was essentially the same event, they were hosted every four or five years, Mm, they're still hosted, by the way. Simply, they are very marginalized now. Mm. Uh, but uh, but anyway, this event was a sign of change. So most people expected, at least many people expected, that uh, Pyongyang Festival would have the same impact. That uh, it was a sign of North Korea becoming more liberal, more open to the outside world. It was especially important because uh, the mid-80s was a time of now largely forgotten ideological and censorship relaxation in North Korea. Most of the North Koreans, they usually connected it with Kim Jong-il, 
who at that time he was still a successor. Mm. He was not still running the country. And people believed that he was sort of secret liberal who wanted to make a country, make more open, less censored literature and so on. And probably for the time being, the your character was probably what Kim Jong-il actually wanted mm. back in 1985. So we had around, say, 83, 84, a great deal of relaxation, like, you know, the lengths of the ideological indoctrination sessions was reduced. It was basically instruction that they should not last more than one or maximum two hours. Mm. Uh, at that same time, censorship was much relieved and some uh, some works, uh, especially in movies and cinema, which would be impossible before and after this period, were released to the public. Then we had, uh, you know, revival of disco and social dancing. And it was... Disco? Yes, disco clubs from 83, 84. You would have it in some major universities and colleges. Uh, and from, you, you were there uh, 84, yes, 85, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. We were not allowed, but uh, North Korean students participated. Okay, now we know that uh, uh, well, at least I've heard or read that during the uh, the 1989 festival that there were uh, uh, discos and uh, and nightclubs and outdoor rock performances. I've even yes. seen a photograph of uh, a uh, Swedish rock band playing at the base of the Juche Tower. Was this then, since you mentioned that discos were already existing in North Korea since the early 1980s, was this not a radical uh, cultural shift or, or, or departure? Uh, well, because it was on such large scale mm. and in the open squares, I would say it was a, a, a shift. But and it was a sort of confirmation that this kind of pop music was okay. Everything was gone, however, in the early 1990s or even earlier. It just was essentially the last hurrah of the North Korean, of the aborted North Korean liberalization of, say, 84, 89. What was the reason for that uh, that abortion of the uh, of the liberal experiment? What, what Did Kim Jong-il change his mind? What happened? Uh, he saw what happened as a result of such experiments in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, especially in Romania, and he Romania. realized that, you know, if he relaxes uh, the control, if people become a bit more free to express their ideas. They can start express some unhealthy and dangerous and subversive and bad ideas. So it's better to make sure they remain silent. And on top of that, they have a sudden deterioration of the entire economic environment because they relied heavily on the subsidies from the Soviet Union and to much less extent China and East European countries and they lost it almost overnight. So, so you, economy was in crisis and he saw how reforms triggered revolution so he decided to push the brake. Going back to your earlier point, you've said this to, to me before that a, uh, that a non-repressive North Korea cannot exist or cannot yes. continue to exist. Yes, yes. Can you just uh, walk our listeners through the logic of that, please? Why is that? Uh, because South Korea exists. Most people say, look, China. China has survived a great deal of liberalization. So what? Chinese Communist Party is in power. Chinese princelings, uh, children and sometimes grandchildren of the party leaders are making there another billion dollars. And the common people are not unhappy about it because they live also very well and everything is stable in China and so on. Why not North Korea? My answer is always because there is no South China. Because China is not a divided country. Taiwan is way too small to make difference. The existence of South Korea makes huge difference. Right now, the difference per capita in per capita income between North and South Korea is roughly 25-fold. 
25 mm. volt. In Germany, the difference between East and West Germany, which did eventually kill East German state, was between two-fold and three-fold. You see the difference. Uh, so the condition of survival of the North Korean state, condition of maintaining political stability inside North Korea, is above all uh, maintaining a very high level of popular control, political surveillance and control, which is inseparable from a great deal of human rights violations. Uh, so in North Korea, which respects uh, human rights, will very soon cease to exist and will be either absorbed by South Korea or will go down in flames into a civil war. So it's one of two conditions of survival of the North Korean state. They will have to remain nuclear, they will have to remain repressive. It's not nice, but if they break one of these two rules, they are dead and the decision makers and their supporters, which is a minority, but a very large minority, much larger than most people believe, they understand it extremely well. Was there any participation by uh, South Koreans in the 1989 World Festival of Youth and Students? Only one person. Uh, because the uh, late 80s was a period of massive infatuation, I would say, with uh, North Korea among the South Korean youth. It was a time when the South Korean youth was very left-leaning. And the leftist ideas at that time was basically Leninist slash Stalinist slash Kim Il-sungist ideology. So these people, uh, it's a bit interesting. They lived through what can be described as the greatest economic and social miracle in the history of the 20th century capitalism. And they managed to live through it without even noticing. So these people uh, saw problems of their societies. And as a kind of alternative, they began to fancy North Korea. So these are the uh, the people who in South Korea are called uh, Jusapha, right? Uh, not only, not only. Jusapha is a bit from later period. Ah. But, but yes, yes, it's one of possible names. Uh, but back in the late 80s, it was a large number of the young radical students. Uh, it was time of extreme politicization. So it was a time when majority of smart students were politically active and all politically active were leftists. Mm-hmm. And nearly all leftists we were essentially Stalinist slash Leninist leftist with a great touch of nationalism. Uh, so South Koreans, uh, South Korean young was very pro-North Korean, many of them at least. And it soon evaporated in this uh, kind of uh, dreams and expectations. They disappeared pretty much overnight a few years later. But back in 1988-89, they were very powerful. We can talk about it for a long time, simply maybe not today. Uh, Just campuses of the South Korean University were essentially hotbed of political activism. And this activism was very pro-North Korean. And there was this organization called the, uh, I'm looking it up because it's a long name, John Guk Deakseng Depyo Ja Hyobihwe, or the John Dehyop, which is the uh, representative union of uh, of all uh, South Korean university students. And they chose a representative to send to North Korea for the festival. Yeah, yeah. They chose actually uh, few representatives too. Mm-hmm. And they even officially applied for a permit for the, from the South Korean government to go, which was not issued. And this person, uh, finally only one person departed. Her name was Im Sugyon. She was a political activist majoring in the in French literature, I'm not sure how old she was, about 20 years old at that time. Yeah, she was very young. Was she, she, uh, was she a Yonsei, uh, Yonsei no, student? No, 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 no. Major, major fortress of the left was HUFS, 
Hanguk University mm. of Foreign Studies. She was there. And uh, she departed for uh, through third countries and she arrived to Pyongyang uh, to receive a massive welcome. Initially, uh, North Korean kind of ideological officials saw her as a God-sent gift. Uh, she was given a great deal of uh, opportunities to talk to the North Koreans. Uh, she was... Uh, Wait, maybe she was... Was she perhaps the first... South Korean citizen to be given a speaking platform to address North Koreans by the North Korean government uh, in many, many years. Yes, I think so. Is there any sign that the North Korean government uh, approved or wrote her speeches? No. Or was no. she just basically given a mic and said, here, talk to the people? Yes. So yeah, the North Korean it? government fe clearly felt that she was on their side, that she yes. was trustworthy. Yes. Uh, because she was saying stuff which did agree with uh, basically the ideas of what would a progressive non-communist uh, South Korean youth should say. So U.S. troops out of Korea. I'm not sure if she said so. Maybe she did. I'm not sure. But it was basically about, you know, dream for unification, unification. Uh, you know, attacks on the military governments which... Uh, ruled uh, South Korea right, until 87 uh, years. Oh, Stories about Not heroic him. students who were tortured to death and police, all these type of things. So she was t telling the staff and uh, but, the, but the problem is that very soon North Korean government began to feel a bit uneasy and they really wanted to get rid of her. By the say mid-August, uh, they basically were quite happy when she left. Because okay, so she stayed much longer than the festival and she was there, what, for a week or so? Sorry, a, a yeah, month or yeah. six weeks? Yes, yeah, because it was a kind of symbolic uh, return on uh, in August on the liberation day. Mm. But yes, she was staying there much longer uh, and she was traveling across the country and people had a very mixed reaction. Uh, first of all, her style, her dress even. When they saw foreign, I don't know, foreign women dressed in this kind of tight uh, trousers, everything, it was seen as something expected because foreigners are strange, bizarre, irrational, immoral, you know it. Uh, because the North Korean uh, view of themselves was a bit like, you know, traditional Chinese view of China. Mm. We are the Middle Kingdom, the bacon of high moral standards and everything around is barbarian that is stupid and immoral and, well, so well, you don't expect barbarians you, you know, to behave in a normal way. Uh, but Im Sugyeon was clearly not a barbarian. She was a Korean. She was from South Korea. Mm -hmm. And people were surprised first how she was dressed because it was very... Well, in the early uh, photos or bits of film you can find some on YouTube, I think she's wearing uh, jeans and a white T-shirt. Absolutely. And, this... and short hair, short for North Korean standards. Yes, and all these things with the exception of basically white T-shirt, maybe white T-shirt too, were completely taboo in North Korea at the time. Uh, so she was dressed in a way which was seen as reactionary but was very attractive. And people began to emulate her and they did emulate her for a long time. Especially because some of these dress code rules in North Korea, they were not really well enforced. So like, say, ban of trousers, which was lifted only in July 2012, mm. but practically was probably never really fully observed. So women did wear trousers, even though sometimes they could get in trouble for that, mostly never not. And so they did take the risks. But for Im Sugyeon, it was, you know, very kind of, I would say, unusual looks. 
And when she was delivering speeches, it was clear that she was partially improvising. It was not a carefully prepared, orchestrated speech mm. on the political stuff, uh, something North Koreans used to. Uh, finally, she looked very good. She was, you know, healthy. Well-fed. Yeah, absolutely well-fed uh, and in good dress. So people were surprised. Uh, how can uh, a girl from suffering North Korea, South Korea, which is in a starving American colony, look like that? Uh, so it was another st- problem, and many people began to say that she is secretly a daughter of some very rich family, which is not true. Mm. Her father was a uh, kind of mid-ranking subway employee, and then after she went to North Korea, uh, from left North Korea, when she went South Korea, yeah, what happened when she came back? She because cro- she she crossed the line in Panmunjom, didn't yes, she? Yes, yes, to be arrested immediately because of this national security law which I'm never uh, tired of repeating, which is uh, that it's uh, non-democratic and uh, non-basically uh, irrational, but it does exist even now. It did exist then. So she was arrested, and uh, North Koreans assumed that she would eventually die in prison many years later. And then uh, North Korean media ran an interview with her parents, and it was a massive shock. When the North Korean public discovered that in the fascist South Korean state, parents of a political prisoner can live in Seoul in the capital and if talk to their foreign journalists, it was something unbelievable, impossible to imagine. And then there was a short report about her being released from prison a few years later. And it was again, uh, people were surprised how short her imprisonment was. Mm. So they began to play her down and basically from the late 1990s, you will not find uh, much refer- almost no references to her. For the um, North Korean po- public, she is a kind of a girl from past. Everybody knows her. Everybody remembers her. And she, but, and she is a symbol of some strange, exotic, uh, alluring outside world. Uh, but very few North Koreans are aware that she is alive and even reasonably politically active. Because even when she went to uh, North Korea again, uh, they tried yeah, to... She, she they went- did not advertise it. In 2000 or 2001, I think yes, it was after yeah. the uh, the Kim Kim summit in Pyongyang, yeah, yeah, yeah. she made a return visit together with some other South Korean, uh, what do you call it, civic group rep- representatives. And uh, uh, I think I read at the time that she didn't want to uh, to go out to, uh, you know, lay flowers at the foot of uh, the statue of Kim Il-sung. So she spent a lot of time in her hotel room. Uh, quite possible, quite possible people change. Uh, but uh, what is also important that her arrival was at the second trip was not much advertised by mm-hmm. the uh, North Korean media because it did not fit. Uh, they understand, uh, they belatedly realized that giving her too much prom- prominence would have bad impact on the population because she was definitely a hardline, at least in the 80s, late 80s, she was a hardline South Korean leftist. But uh, in spite of what she used to say, her dress, her behavior, uh, her passion, everything told volumes about life in South Korea. And if North Korean government wants to survive, if they want North Korea to remain a separate and stable nation, they cannot allow spread of such knowledge. So do you think that uh, maybe Im Su-gyong was an, a, an important uh, lesson for the North Korean government in the sort of double 
double-edged sword nature of inviting pro-North Korean South Koreans to come and speak to uh, the North Korean public? Yes, I think so. It's probably forgotten by now, Mm. however, because it's always a big temptation. My understanding is that since your trip, no South Korean visitor, no matter how much he claimed to be committed to the great Kim family, no uh, South Korean visitor has been allowed the same level of prominence, Mm. the same level of exposure. Yeah, that's probably quite true. I mean, I know in in 2010, when I first went to uh, to North Korea with our, our mutual friend, Michael Spavel, and we met the uh, a, a South Korean religious leader there, Pastor Han, Han Sang-yo or Han Song-yol. Uh, he was visiting illegally, he, uh, similar to Mr. Kyung. He uh-huh. had uh, broken the national security law by, by visiting North Korea without the permission of the South Korean government. And he was also there for about uh, one month to six weeks, preaching in North Korean churches and staying at the Yangakdo Hotel. And he was arrested upon his uh, uh, crossing over the line at Panmunjom. Uh, and yeah, he, he did not have the same level of prominence, uh, as you say, uh, that, that Im Su-kyung did. Yes, of course. And when he was preaching in the North Korean churches, it's a big question whether the uh, attending people were real Christians or just you know, props. Uh, we don't know. I'm going to believe many of them are real Christians, but they are clearly a small and carefully watched groups. Uh, that gives me a, a, a good segue to mention that I believe that the churches that exist in Pyongyang, there are, I think, uh, four uh, four of them, one Catholic and three Protestant or something like that, a very small number. I believe that they were built around the time of the, uh, the 1989 festival. Yeah. Uh, because uh, around this time, North Koreans first time admitted that religious activities in their countries can exist. Mm-hmm. Because uh, it was a period of roughly 20 or uh, so 15 years, from late 50s to the early 70s, when it was a complete silence about any kind of religion. Only two countries, North Korea and Albania, Albania at that time, uh, they sort of claimed that they had no religious activities whatsoever. From the early 70s, some religious groups uh, began to appear, but only when some foreign uh, Christian delegations visited North Korea uh, and when the uh, signatures of these groups' uh, leaders um, officials uh, were under some kind of political declarations. But starting from roughly the, the feast festivals, just before, they did open churches mm. and they began to tolerate some kind of heavily controlled uh, religious activities. Most of these activities or some of these activities are probably fa- fake, but not all. I think not all. Now, you uh, you mentioned earlier in the, uh, the interview that uh, some of your fellow students from Leningrad went to the festival and came back. What impression did they tell you about uh, the festival? Strangely, strangely enough, uh, maybe I was unlucky because these people had nothing to do with Korean studies. They did not talk much about interaction with North Koreans. Mm. They liked Pyongyang. They found it a quite interesting place, you know, exotic place, if you like. Uh, but uh, talks about interaction, it was largely about dealing with other visitors, mm-hmm. other participants. Talking about, you know, dealing with North Korea, I just remember complaints that uh, while formally they were allowed to walk, because, but location was done, I believe, deliberately in a way uh, to make such walks, uh, such interaction difficult. So uh, 30 years on, here we are in 2019. Uh, what can we learn by looking back at that, uh, that period of uh, North Korean history and the festival in particular? Well, it was a period, first period of major disappointments. We have had 
a lot, and we'll see it again and again and again. Back in the late 1980s, mid later uh, 1980s, there were signs of liberalization. They began to look for foreign investment. They began to talk a bit very carefully about minor economic changes. Uh, so it did look like uh, that no, North Korea is just about to initiate reforms. And uh, back then, I myself sort of believed that I was young and had, back then I had no such a story of, uh, you know, not so much watching North Korea, but hearing to all the stocks. Then we had few more waves of same stories, but the sad part of the story is if North Koreans want to survive, they cannot go too far with political reforms. Economic reforms are doable and they are doing it right now and quite well. Uh, but... Well, uh, the festival, I think it will remain largely a footnote in North Korean history. I don't think it was a massive turning point. Of course, it was not. It was expected to be such. Yeah, it, it was did. expected to be, right. Yeah. It was not. It was, if you like, a false start, a false uh, kind of hope. And in general, it will remain a footnote to history. I think probably Im Soo-yeon is the single most important character mm. of the festival, uh, few people remember this, you know, rock concerts of the Swedish groups uh, on Chuchke Square. And uh, the tragic events of the 1990s greatly overshadowed whatever impact the festival produced. It's interesting, when I was there just over a month ago in, in Pyongyang, I uh, specifically asked in a number of shops uh, for any uh, book or DVD or photograph book uh, about the uh, festival and, and was told that, yeah, that, that there's nothing like that on sale anymore. It did. The only mem- memorial that's left is that gigantic pyramid-shaped Yuyong Hotel, which is still not open, but is now uh, uh, lit up with uh, moving LED displays on the outside. Mm-hmm. And it's finally covered with glass a few years ago because right. it was a kind of... Uh, rather ugly pyramid in the center of the city, not anymore. Yeah, it was an eyesore. Yeah, I, I know what, um, I, I, in the 1990s, uh, a French acquaintance of mine went to Pyongyang and he was deliberately discouraged from even photographing the building. Yeah, uh, but um, yes, talking about the festival, I think it was it was an interesting footnote, uh, a reminder of some periods of relative relaxations we have seen. We have seen such periods in the, say, mid-50s. We saw it in the mid-80s. Uh, we saw it too, in a very different way in the early 2000s. So, well, it was just another end. It was expected to become the beginning of big change. Actually, it was the last, last point in a short period of small changes, which will actually reverse eventually. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Andre Lankov, and giving us a look back on the uh, 1989 13th World Festival of Youth and Students. We hope to see you again soon. Andre. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. All right, listeners, and we'll have uh, another interview in this series about the festival coming up very soon. <laughs> <laughs>